Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study this morning is The Power of His Resurrection. We're going to be discussing uh, certain aspects of the resurrection and the resurrection happens to be one of those Christian uh, or most basic Christian doctrines that everybody believes. If I were to ask you now, how many believe in the resurrection? I think everybody will put their hand up. And if you don't put your hand up, there'll be a problem. That's one of the most basic and fundamental beliefs. And it seems like some of these most basic and fundamental beliefs are taken so much for granted that we want to talk about deeper and more complex issues. And we all know the resurrection, we all believe in it. So today I want to look at the resurrection. I want to see what the Bible says about it. And, and hopefully by God's grace, uh, we will shed some biblical light on this topic so that we might appreciate it to a greater degree. Hopefully this is, this is the objective uh, of that. And in, in, in growing up as an Adventist and in listening to, uh, to many sermons over, over uh, my short lifetime so far, uh, I, found, I, find, I, I find it hard to, to remember many sermons, if any, about the resurrection. I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem to be a popular or common topic of preaching, at least from my memory. And there are reasons for that. Perhaps in the Adventist psyche, somehow subconsciously we think that an emphasis on the resurrection gives our opponents an upper hand. Because after all, they keep Sunday because of? The resurrection, isn't that right? So perhaps we, we don't focus on the resurrection because that might indirectly somehow help their cause. So we focus on the Sabbath. And I've heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons about the Sabbath, but not as much about the resurrection. Now, obviously, the resurrection does not help the cause of Sunday keepers, no matter how much they say that that's what they keep Sunday. Now, interestingly enough, just this morning, I was reminded, because I got a message on my phone, uh, that today happens to be... Easter Sunday. Sunday. And I did not think of that at all until this morning. And I'm talking about the resurrection. And so me talking about the resurrection has nothing to do with Sunday. But it has to do with the importance of the event that happened on the day that is being commemorated today. So I don't know what the reasons are why the resurrection is not so common. Maybe this is so, but uh, today we want to look at it a little bit and hopefully appreciate it in a fresh light. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start in Philippians chapter 3. This is our first text, Philippians chapter 3. And in looking at the resurrection, I uh, don't want us to forget that uh, we have to link that to the foundation of righteousness as well. Philippians chapter 3. Paul here begins in verse 9 to say something. He says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. In verse 10, Paul wanted to know three things. What are they? He wanted to know him, but that was not enough. He also wanted to know something he calls the power of his resurrection. And then also he talks about the fellowship of his suffering. Today we want to explore a little bit the power of his resurrection. You know, it's interesting that uh, knowing Christ was not enough for Paul. What else did he want to know? What is this that he talks about as the power of, the re of his resurrection. What does that really mean? And so this is my question, my challenge to you and to me as we go through this study. Do we believe in the resurrection? Do we know the power of his resurrection? And in order for us to understand this power of his resurrection, uh, you know, Paul illustrates it in another passage. Just so we can appreciate how much power is there. What, is, what that really means. Paul in another passage, explores that a little deeper. And that passage is in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's turn over there, Ephesians chapter 1. And we will see a, a detailed explanation of what this power looks like in, in action. Just a little bit as far as the resurrection is concerned. Ephesians chapter 1, and we will read there verses 19 and tw uh, down to 21. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. He says, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power, speaking about God the Father, of His power to us word who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrote in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Interesting, here Paul says this power was manifested in this fact that God raised Christ from the dead. He set Him on His right hand, far above everything, and He has this uh, superfluous language of all these things that He lists, that Christ is above all that. And then in the end there, He says, not only in this world, but in the world to come. That's what the power of the resurrection, that's the extent of it. At least an example right there. And then Paul says this power is exercised towards a group of people. Who are they? It's exercised to us word, and then there is a qualifier. Who? Believe. I want to keep that in mind as we go through this particular aspect today. But that last verse has a uh, a list there. In verse 21 it says, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. What is that? What are these principalities and powers and mights and dominions that are mentioned in this verse? The forces that work in our world. The forces that work in our world. Great controversy. Comprehend all the universe. Comprehend all the universe. I, I, I'm thinking a bit more, more specifically. When the Bible talks about principalities and powers, what's that referring to? There's another verse in the same book where Paul says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. What's he talking about? Satan. Satan and his angels. So something in the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, accomplished an exaltation of Christ over principalities, far above principalities and powers and might and dominion. Not that he was under, but there is some emphatic declaration of superiority that is accomplished by the resurrection. And Paul wants us to understand this. And then Paul, uh, as we read earlier, says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. So you can start to appreciate what we're talking about here. So I want to explore that further, as I said. And uh, an interesting verse, uh, and perhaps a puzzling verse, uh, is First Peter chapter 3. Let's go to First Peter chapter 3. And here we have one of those passages in Scripture that uh, it causes, there are a few, few passages in Scriptures that when you read it, you start scratching your head. And you just keep reading. And you say maybe the next verse will be clearer to understand. This is one of them. At least I think so. Uh, let's see if you can remember reading it and thinking that way as well. First Peter chapter 3. We'll just read it a little bit in context so that we can appreciate the thought that Peter is trying to convey and see what we can learn. Verse 17, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. He says, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing, than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath su once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, <clears throat> but quickened, by the Spirit. Verse 19 is what I want to focus on. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. And then he goes on. But verse 19, you ever about, wondered about verse 19? Where Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison? I've had discussions about this verse with some people, and, and there are a number of popular interpretations. The most common and the most popular interpretation for this verse, you might be familiar with it, is that when Christ died, He went into the lower regions, He went into the grave, and for three days in hell, Christ preached to all these dead people the gospel. You familiar with that interpretation? Okay, well, if, if you're an evangelical Christian or if you're, uh, you know, one of these other denominations, this is probably the most common out there Christian interpretation. It's actually in the articles of the creed, in the uh, creeds of the churches that Christ went to hell and preached to these spirits. Now, of course, uh, as Adventists, we, we don't see that interpretation as accurate because we understand the state of the dead. And so perhaps a more... Uh, plausible interpretation is that this verse, this is another interpretation, this verse is actually talking about uh, the Spirit of Christ that preached to the people who were living in the days of Noah. This doesn't have to do with dead people, but it has to do with the, how Christ through Noah 
preached to these people in those times. You might be familiar with that interpretation. Uh, and uh, we want to explore these aspects a little bit. First of all, in looking at that, we have to keep in mind that uh, the context of what Peter is talking about is very significant. In other words, this is a, this is a very uh, important question to ask. What does the preaching to people in the days of Noah have to do with you and me enduring suffering and trial now? Isn't that right? Because that's why he says in verse 17, he says, It is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for good or well-doing rather than for evil-doing. And then he seeks to, rem uh, to encourage these believers who are suffering. And the thought that he begins to encourage them with, with is the thought that Christ also suffered, even though he was innocent. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was resurrected or quickened by the Spirit. And then he goes on to say he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So this particular verse has something to do with encouraging people who are going through suffering and trial in order for it to make sense in the context. We can't just isolate it and say, well, this means this and this means that, and come up with some explanation that theologically fits our framework and say, well, there it is. It has to actually practically encourage believers. This is what we want to explore today. How does that encourage the believers and how does that encourage us today? Because as, we, as others have been talking, uh, persecution is coming. Get ready. And some of us already are experiencing trial and suffering. I was talking to some people at camp who just went through a very severe trauma. And it's, a, it's a, a trial. It is suffering. And we do need to remember that there is something to encourage us. This is, what, this is the whole purpose of Peter's particular passage right here. So we want to explore this verse a little bit. What does it mean that Christ went and preached to the spirits that are in prison? First of all, uh, there are a number of assumptions that are made. And this is usually a problem when interpreting certain passages, uh, as we remember. In the Millerite movement, or the Advent movement, the great disappointment happened because one word was misunderstood. You remember what that word was? Yeah. Sanctuary, isn't that right? They thought the sanctuary, someone said sanctuary, that's obviously earth, without doing a study on it. And many times when we read certain passages, we just automatically, well, that obviously means this, and we begin to interpret in our mind perhaps without even thinking about it, because of whatever upbringing, whatever indoctrination, whatever understanding we might have. And this naturally happens with this particular verse as well. So the questions I want to ask here are, are obvious questions. Who are the spirits? Why are they in prison? What does the preaching really mean? And ultimately, what does that have to do with encouraging us to endure suffering? Okay, so just a few questions I want to explore. First of all, let's look at the word spirit. And the word spirit here is uh, from the Greek word pneuma, which means, we all know, breath, wind, air. That's what spirit is. Interestingly enough, uh, all interpretations, uh, or the most popular interpretations for this verse, apply the word spirit to human beings, whether they be dead people in the grave or people who were alive in the time of Noah. But here's an interesting fact. The New Testament never once refers to human beings as spirits. Not once. So on what basis do we assume that the word there means? Because that's naturally there. And we start to think, well, how can we explain this? How did this happen in preaching? And we're thinking of people. The Bible never refers to human beings as spirits. It does say that human beings have a spirit. But they're not called spirits. The Bible refers to a class of creatures as spirits. There are those that are called ministering spirits. In Hebrews 1, the Bible says, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers flames of fire. Isn't that right? The Bible also says, Are they not all ministering spirits? Who's that talking about there? Angels. What kind of angels? Good angels or holy angels. The Bible also talks about unclean Spirits, isn't that right? The Bible also talks about God being spirit and that God has a Holy Spirit. But not once does the Bible talk about human beings and say spirits. Interesting fact because that all of a sudden demands us to think in a different direction, isn't that right? We have spirits that are angels that are good or angels that are bad. And so the only conclusion we are left with, in, as far as this verse is concerned, that when the Bible here talks about spirits, it is referring to angelic beings. It obviously cannot refer to the Holy Spirit or to God. So that's an obvious excluded option. 
So what kind of angelic beings, good or bad beings? Well, we're given a clue in the next verse. It says they were at one time disobedient. Isn't that right? So these are evil angels. So maybe your mind is thinking now, as you're looking at the verse again, thinking, oh, hold on, this, this is a bit different. Well, how does that fit? And what does it mean when it talks about these spirits are in prison? Let's look at another verse. Same author, 2 Peter chapter 2. So I just want us to stay together here. We're not going to spend too much time here, but I just want to bring out a thought as we understand this verse perhaps in a fresher light. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4, here's what Peter says. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Here Peter is talking about something, a very similar line of thought, very similar concepts that he's dealing with. But he's talking about the angels that sinned. And he says they were cast down where? Verse 4. They were cast down into? Hell. hell. Now what's hell mean? What, what's the, in the Bible, when we read hell as Adventists, what does it mean? It means a grave, isn't that right? We, we don't believe in a hell that's now burning people go to hell. Hell is the grave, Hades. But it's interesting that this word here is not Hades. It is not the word that is usually translated hell. It's actually a Greek word that only appears here. And the Greek word here is Tartarus. And you know what it means? A place of restraint. Or, in other words, a prison. So in other words here, the Bible says that God did not spare the angels of sin, but cast them down to a place of restraint or a prison. There is some kind of a hold or a restriction that has been placed on the fallen angels. And of course, the translators chose to uh, translate it as hell for whatever reason, but it's, just, it's clear when you look at the, at the meaning. That's not the only place. Let's go to Jude chapter 1. Here's another verse. Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1. As we look at this prison, does it apply to the evil spirits? Does the prison apply to evil spirits? Jude chapter 1 verse 6. And it says here, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Same thought, isn't that right? The fallen angels are reserved in everlasting chains. What picture does that paint in our mind? Some kind of a prison. prison. Now I want to keep in mind here, this is, these are not literal chains. This is not a real literal prison. This is a situation or a circumstance or a condition. Just like we see in the book of Revelation, uh, in chapter 20, an angel comes down with a great chain and he binds Satan for a thousand years. Obviously, that's not a literal chain. There are circumstances that bind him. And so this is the representation that is given to us. The fallen angels, the wicked, these wicked spirits, are imprisoned or they are bound or reserved in everlasting chains until the... Judgment. There is some restraint. And this restraint is the one that's referred to as the prison. This denotes the facts that they are kept in check by someone. In other words, the, uh, the devil and his angels cannot just do anything they wish. Praise God for that. Amen. We have no idea what, that, what we are shielded from. And you can see that very clear in a number of places in the scriptures. In the book of Job, you see that there are certain restraints placed on Satan. And uh, Satan had to get God's uh, permission or God's uh, approval before carrying out certain aspects in the story of Job. So there is this prison that we're talking about here. So we've identified the spirits, we've identified this, uh, the prison, but there is one other puzzling aspect. Because the Bible says Christ went and preached to the spirits that are in prison. And you might be thinking, as I did, why in the world would Christ preach to evil angels? What is the point? Because when we say the word preach, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Evangelize, preaching the gospel or 
salvation. Once again, this is something that we read into the verse that the verse does not say. Peter does not say what is preached. He doesn't say the gospel was preached. But this, in all the explanations, this is the assumed meaning. Now, if we look up the, uh, the word preached and the meanings of it, I don't want to get too technical here. I just want us to, to see this quickly. The word preached there means to proclaim or to herald or to announce or to publish. It can be used to preach the gospel if the gospel is identified as what is preached. But it is not safe for us to assume that the gospel is what is preached in that particular verse. Because Peter doesn't say that. So it's not safe to make that assumption. So something was announced and was proclaimed to the evil angels that are in prison when something took place. Now the previous verse gives us an insight and the clue is, uh, if you go back there, if you want to read it in, in 1 Peter 3, it says that Christ suffered once, the just for the unjust, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the, by the Spirit. What's the word quickened by the Spirit mean? He was made alive. In other words, he's referring here to which event? His resurrection. So here's what Peter is saying. Christ was put to death in the flesh. He was resurrected by the Spirit, by which also he went and made an announcement to all the evil angels in prison. You with me so far? And the announcement that was made is linked to his resurrection. He made a proclamation. In other words, the resurrection of Christ went out as a proclamation, an announcement throughout the ranks of the evil angels. And what do you think that announcement of the resurrection told them? They are defeated. Victory is accomplished. So the preaching is not the preaching of the gospel. The spirits are not people and the prison is not the grave. Can you see that? Now this is something interesting because Peter is using this to encourage believers and, and hopefully we will see as, as time progresses how this uh, encourages believers. But the resurrection of Christ made an announcement to all the fallen angels that they were defeated. They were utterly and completely defeated. In other words, the resurrection of Christ proved something. And uh, let's go back to 1 Peter 3 and see how Peter continues this thought and actually confirms what we found in the next few verses. 1 Peter 3, verse 21, he says, The like figure, now he just left off Noah, who was saved through the flood, okay? In verse 20, verse 21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want us to pause here for a minute, because there is a thought here. And, yeah, you can see it in your Bibles. It's in parentheses, right? So let's just drop what's in the parentheses just for a minute so we can appreciate the thought. Peter is saying, The like figure around to even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's linking a number of things. He's linking the resurrection of Christ with an announcement that went out among the evil angels. And then he talks about Noah. And then he likens that to baptism. And he says, This baptism saves us by... The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then verse 22, he says, Who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. The resurrection did something in the spirit world that we need to understand in order to appreciate and partake of the power of his resurrection. This is something very, very significant. Christ went above all the angels and principalities and powers. They are all made subject unto him. And uh, the fact that Christ ascended to the throne of God is uh, a further evidence of his complete victory over Satan and over his kingdom. And this victory that was proclaimed to all the fallen angels is to encourage us. And I want to explore that a little bit because I don't need to ask you if you go through a hard time or if you uh, suffer trial, or if you suffer distress, or anguish, or worry. We all experience that in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes we experience that because of some poor choices and decisions that we make. Uh, that doesn't count as much as when we experience that 
when we haven't done anything to bring that upon us. Because that's what Peter says, right? It's good and well if you suffer for? For good rather than for evil. If you, if you break the law and you suffer for it, that's not being persecuted and, and all that stuff. That's, yeah, that's, that's a consequence of what you did. But if you suffer innocently, if you having done nothing and you suffer, that's when it's a real trial because you say, Lord, why is this happening to me? I didn't do anything to deserve this. And it becomes very difficult and sometimes it's actually a trial for our faith to make some meaning out of an experience that we are going through that we do not deserve, we did not do anything to bring about, it is imposed upon us. And Peter is trying to encourage the believers who are going through this particular experience with a thought to lift up their spirits. And this is the thought that we're examining. He's referring to the resurrection of Christ and what it accomplished in order to encourage them. So let's go look at this again. Just to, Maybe we'll read the verse again and put in what we have found so far and see if it starts to make a little bit more sense, hopefully. So we'll read from verse 17. We're still in 1 Peter. And uh, I'll just read it in context again. And when we can get to verse 19, we'll just put in what we found from the Bible so far. He says in verse 17, For it is better if the will of God be so that he suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or resurrected by the Spirit, by which resurrection also he went and proclaimed unto the fallen angels that are reserved in chains unto judgment. And what he proclaimed was victory. His triumph reached to these angels that were in Tartarus and was heard very loud and clear by every one of them, as we shall see. So then Peter says, Never mind, therefore, if you also are called to suffer, because in like manner you will have a glorious victory. I want to see how that really takes place. You know, when we go through trial, when we go through suffering and distress and worry, and we, and we feel a little bit distressed and and we get worried, that's really a manifestation of fear, isn't that right? If you think about it, what do you think? It's really fear, we're afraid to some extent, some more, some less, when we worry, we worry about the house, worry about the children, worry about the food, worry about clothes, worry about what will happen, worry about this, stress about, about that, we are fearful of something. Now, I think we all know the verse, the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. And so we say, uh, to encourage the brother or sister, brother, the, the sister, the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. Don't be afraid, as if that will make it all go away. Now, that's good to say, but we, when we understand a little bit more of what Christ accomplished, it actually casts out fear. You see, the resurrection is the antidote for fear. Now, you might not see the connection straight away. Hopefully, we'll see it as we go along. But I want you to keep that thought in mind as we go. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is the ultimate antidote for fear, as we shall see. Because this is what we are to take heart in. This is what Peter is trying to encourage the believers with, and this is what we are to be encouraged with. You see, the resurrection of Christ sounded the death knell of Satan in the very midst of his kingdom. The resurrection of Christ was the victory call given in the very heart of the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of Satan was totally and completely shattered and decimated by one particular event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You realize that? Completely decimated and shattered. Now this is very, very significant. Uh, there are a number of passages that bring that out plainly, and we want to explore them a little bit. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. But I want to keep that thought in mind, because, brothers and sisters, we are dealing with a kingdom and an enemy that has been defeated. And the, the defeat is very tangible and very real. But all too often we forget. And so that's why suffering and trial have such a... Uh, you know, we find it really hard sometimes because we forget that. That's what difficulties do. They blind us. Colossians, we're going to chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Colossians 2 is a very popular uh, verse. 
that people use against what we believe as Adventists, of course. You'll be familiar with it. But let's just read it here together. Verse 14, he says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And then it goes on about not judging because of this, that, and the other. And there's the Sabbath. And this is how this verse is uh, familiar to us. But verse 15 is one verse that uh, stood out to me at one point. It says in verse 15 that Christ did something. He spoiled principalities and powers. Not only did he spoil them, but he made a show of them openly. You know what that means? It was a scandalous defeat for the powers of darkness. Amen. When you make an open show publicly of something, this is what it was. Absolutely scandalous defeat for the powers of darkness. That's what Christ accomplished. Uh, not only, of course, at the cross, but uh, many times the Bible uses the language, when it talks about the cross, it talks about the package of what happened. It's the death and the resurrection of Christ. Many times that's what is implied when the word cross is used. Uh, in Christ here it says, not only did he make an open show of them, triumphing over them, but he spoiled them. And what's the word spoil mean? This arm? Okay, this side one, this side. Wasted two. This, okay. Okay, these are all good, good explanations. I just want to make sure you're all awake. Just, uh, we're all very quiet. Uh, Okay, yeah, well, that's, that's today. But biblically, the, the word spoiled and, and in, in Old English uh, is particularly used, stripped, that's true, when, uh, say, an, uh, one king conquers another king and he takes his spoils. Isn't that right? These are the, the bounty the, of war. And uh, that's one of the greatest evidences that th this king has defeated that king when he takes his Spoils. For example, in the book of Daniel, it begins with the account of uh, in the third year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar came, he besieged Jerusalem, and he defeated the city, and then he carried away the spoils. And the particular spoils that are mentioned there, he carried away people, but he also carried a very significant portion that was important to the Jews. What was that? the furniture from the sanctuary. These were the spoils. And you can just imagine as Nebuchadnezzar went back to Babylon and as he's marching through the gate of Ishtar and he, on display in his train of victory is what? All these captive Jews in chains and all these articles of the defeated Hebrew God. That's what it was in their mind. Isn't that right? And the tokens and the evidence of his victory is all these spoils of war. Here comes the seven-branch candlestick. Here comes the table of showbread. All the Babylonians are looking on. These are the spoils of war. King Nebuchadnezzar was victorious. And this was his victory march into his city. Of course, he would have received a very great welcome. So th this is the kind of picture that I get when it talks about Christ spoiled the powers of darkness. And he gave them a scandalous defeat. It wasn't in some dark corner that was private. This was a public defeat. Let's go to Luke chapter 11. Jesus talked about this somewhere else. Luke chapter 11. Jesus here gives a parable. And he is dealing with the same thing that we have been talking about. Luke chapter 11 verse 21. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. What was Jesus referring to? Who is the strong armed man that keeps his palace? It is Satan. And Satan had claimed the domain of sin and death as his palace. That's his strong house. And then Jesus says, when a stronger man come, that's of course referring to himself, he overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor, and then in the end there it says, he divideth his spoils. You see, Satan had claimed the domain of death, sin and death, as his own domain. And he was the king of death. 
And he claimed as his own all those who passed into death. And so Christ says, listen, there's something here in this great controversy that's going to happen. This strong man that's keeping his palace, in order for victory to be achieved, that strong man needs to be bound. And the greatest evidence that victory has been achieved is when the spoils of the strong man are divided. Or when his spoils are taken from him, as another uh, gospel gives us. So the spoils are really the tokens of victory. You with me so far? Yeah. Okay, I was just double checking. Let's go to Isaiah 26. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26. And this prophecy has to do also with what we are talking about in Isaiah 26. An interesting prophecy that talks about something that will take place in the future. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Isaiah 26, verse 19 says, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise, awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Do you know when this prophecy was fulfilled? At the resurrection of Christ. This is what we're talking about. You see, the resurrection of Christ marks a very, very important milestone in the great controversy. Incredibly significant. This prophecy deals with that. It talks about not only will Christ live again, but when He lives again, there will be others who will be brought to life. And these others that are brought to life constitute spoils from the domain of the enemy. Isn't that right? Let's go, let's go to Matthew 27. We're all familiar with this verse. Matthew, uh, Matthew 27. We're all familiar with this. I just want us to read it together so we can appreciate the thought again. Matthew 27, verse 52. This is at the resurrection of Christ. Or at that timing anyway. It says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. The Bible here says that when Christ rose, many went into the city. Isn't that right? Many were raised with Christ. The reason they were raised with Christ is, is manifold. It's not just one reason. But this is a fulfillment of that prophecy that we just read in Isaiah. And this is a token and an evidence of the ultimate irreversible defeat of Satan. Very, very significant to keep that in mind. Because I want you to think about something. Uh, when Moses died, remember Moses died? Old Testament. He wasn't permitted to go into the promised land. He died. And not long after that, uh, the book of Jude records it. Uh, Christ comes down with the purpose of resurrecting him. And then what happens? Remember what happens? There is a contention. The Bible says, Michael, the archangel... And the devil, they contended over the body of Moses. And Christ told them, the Lord rebuke thee. What was the contention? What was the basis of the contention? The resurrection of Moses. In other words, what, what, what was the basis of the, the... What are the reasons that Satan tried to oppose Christ based on? Satan was basically saying, you have no right to invade my kingdom and take away my captive. Moses sinned, and your word says the wages of sin is... Death, therefore you have no right to do this. Now it's interesting to, to keep in mind that this was the, the very first resurrection to ever occur in the entire history of the universe. For the very first time ever, Christ was going to bring someone back from the dead. It was good. So the devil, up to that point, had understood and thought all those who passed into death had gone into a dead end street. There is no coming back. So here's Christ coming to bring Moses back, and the devil says, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. You can't do that. He belongs to me. He sinned. He belongs to me. Now Christ rebuked him, and he did raise Moses. And uh, he, he raised him because, uh, because the, the promises that are given and the great controversy that he would ultimately defeat the kingdom of Satan. But that defeat 
did not take place until Christ himself had defeated death at his resurrection. And that's why at his resurrection, many bodies were raised, and we don't see the devil complaining in that story. We don't see the devil saying, oh, hold on, you have no, he's defeated, completely defeated. So there was no contention. Uh, and these, these uh, people, it says they went into the city and they preached or, or they, they were witnesses unto many. Uh, now, does anyone remember how long did they stay on earth giving witness and testimony of what Christ had accomplished? They stayed for 40 days. So for 40 days, Jerusalem experienced this uh, had never experienced before. Here are the people that have come back from the dead. From, from the dead. And these people were, were told they were faithful souls from all ages. So there would have been people there who were faithful to God from the time of the antediluvians even. Now what kind of people in stature were they there? They were giants. So Jerusalem was in a total uproar. The resurrection of Christ did not uh, just you know, occupy a corner in the newspapers at the time, so to speak. It was the headlines. The entire city knew and heard about the resurrection of Christ. If it wasn't from the disciples, it was maybe because some resurrected saint came in person and told them. This was a very, very powerful witness. Why? This was a declaration of victory given to Jerusalem, given to mankind, those there at the time. And it's the same declaration of victory that went out throughout the, all the ranks of the evil angels. And uh, uh, finally, when the, when the 40 days were finished, now I just want to mention something else here because many times we wonder, I don't know, we have discussions with people and say, oh, who, who, who was raised? You know, do we know who were raised? And, and we always ask questions that we don't have all the answers to. But we are given some clues. And the book of Zahar of Ages actually tells us that those faithful souls who were raised there were a certain category of saints. It was all those who had sealed their faith with blood. You know what that means? They were martyrs. So those who stayed faithful unto the end, God selected a handful of them, however, however many, we're not told many, and He raised them. Faithful representatives from all ages. And He raised them as witnesses for Him. So uh, martyrs, just quickly, that means the first martyr and the last martyr up to that point, they both qualify. Who's the first martyr? Abel. Abel. He qualifies. I'm not saying Abel was in that group. So don't, don't miss But he qualifies. So he could have been in that group. So here's giant Abel going to testify in Jerusalem. For example. And who's the last martyr up to that point? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist qualifies. I'm not saying he was raised, but he qualifies. We are not told the names of these people. So for 40 days this occurred. Just to give us a bit of an idea as to how, uh, you know, this would have been like in Jerusalem. And maybe other faithful people had sealed uh, their, their faith with blood throughout the history of the world up to that particular point. So 40 days later, what happens to these people? They went with Christ. Okay, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And this starts getting a little bit more interesting. Ephesians 4, 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. When Jesus ascended on the 40th day from the Mount of uh, Olives there where he ascended, at the same time, those resurrected saints, wherever they might have been, all of a sudden they would have started to levitate. Isn't that right? I just have a, you know, a picture in my mind. Because they weren't all in the same place, right? They didn't all go travel in a group witnessing. They went throughout the whole city. That's the whole purpose of raising many. Otherwise, Christ would have just raised one. He raised many so they could go throughout. And so wherever these people might have been scattered at the appointed hour when Christ was ascending, they also ascended and they joined together maybe at the meeting point somewhere up in the clouds. And together they went with the train of angels to heaven. Is that right? That's the picture that we are given. Now, interestingly enough, this train is really the triumphant train that Christ had conquered Satan. And when they went up into the city, you know, Psalms records the, the words, you know, it says, open the gates that the righteous 
king might come in the age and say, who is this king? This is the king of glory, the Lord mighty in battle, and all this. This is the song of triumph, and here is Christ returning from earth after having conquered totally the kingdom of Satan. And as evidence and irrefutable tokens of his victory, he has with him the spoils of the kingdom of Satan, samples of those that were captive. These samples are, you know, he walks into the, I just picture the scene, he walks into the gates of the New Jerusalem and everybody sees, here are these people that were captives of Satan in the grave, resurrected. First fruits. Yes, so first fruits in, in, in one sense. Uh, irrefutable evidence that the kingdom of Satan is shattered, totally and completely. And of course, we understand, amen. We understand later that uh, these are very likely the people that John saw as the 24 elders sitting around the throne. But anyway, we'll, we'll go into that later. So the Bible tells us that Christ, through his sacrifice, has abolished death and brought immortality to light. Isn't that right? And when did that take place? When did Christ bring life? It's when he also received life when he was resurrected. Now I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 2 because I mentioned something before. Hebrews chapter 2. I mentioned something about fear and that when we are troubled and we have trials and we worry, it is really fear. And the resurrection of Christ is the antidote for fear. I want to see why that is the case. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 will give us a clue. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. Notice what it says here. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Christ entered into the domain of Satan. That's the domain of death. And he went into death and he shattered that. And that's how he destroyed the devil. Verse 15, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I have a question for you. What is the ultimate fear of all fears for humanity? It is death. Second or first death are death. One year is a resurrection if you believe in Christ. But the quality of death of both is, is it's death. The ultimate fear of all fears for human beings is death. The only reason we say second, not first, because we believe in Christ. We know that the first death is only asleep, as someone mentioned. But can you think of an unbeliever on their deathbed? Have you ever seen an unbeliever on their deathbed? Yes. It is a miserable terror. An absolutely miserable terror. That is the ultimate fear. The Bible tells us that Christ conquered this fear, and the way that he accomplished the defeat of this enemy, death, is through his resurrection. By his death and by his resurrection, he defeated death. And that's why the Christian now has nothing to fear from the fear of all fears. Therefore, the Christian should not fear any lesser fear. You think about it. If Christ has conquered death, the greatest of all fears, then why should we fear anything less? And this is an encouraging thought, is it? When we appreciate and understand what the resurrection has accomplished, it has removed completely the ultimate fear. You know, you might be worried about your car, you might be worried about your house, your family, your home, but ultimately the real worry is death. Now Christ has dealt with that. So that gives us courage to face any other lesser fear because death has this permanent nature to it. It's an irreversible event. Praise God, Christ offers to us now Death, and he says, listen, this is not death. For you, it is only asleep. And it's only asleep based on the fact that I have conquered death. And you want to see the place where I conquered death? It is on that resurrection morning when I rose from the grave and I pulled out of the grave all these dead people to prove to you and to the whole universe that the king of death is defeated. And I gave him a public beating. I made an open show of him publicly. That was the defeat of Satan. You see, we don't understand really perhaps fully what happened on that resurrection morning. You remember, I like the description of the Ages. You know, when the angel came, uh, maybe we'll back up a little bit. Uh, Satan really did not want Christ to get out of the grave. Satan dared to hope that maybe, just maybe, he was successful when Christ died. You realize that? 
And he says, we're going to seal that tomb physically and spiritually. He got Pilate to seal the tomb through the priests, you know. And he got every demon that he had at his command. He said, report for duty you around that grave. No one bother with anyone else. This is it. And his whole purpose is to hold Christ in the grave. To prevent. He just hoped, he dared to hope that maybe, just maybe, Christ would not come out of the grave. That's the description we're given in the book of Zarab Ages. And uh, on the resurrection morning, I love that description. We're told that when the angel came down from God with the commission to bring Christ back to life. Remember when the angel comes in, he says, Son of God, thy father calls thee. You know what happened? All the demons took off. That's what we're told. Every single one of them. And Satan was left there alone to watch Christ come out of that grave and to maybe hear all these other resurrections that were taking place. And Satan was made, he, Christ made of him an open show public. And of course, when Christ came out, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Christ obtained the keys of hell and of death. He now has the key. And as evidence that he had the keys, he opened a few doors and he pulled them out. And he said, you come with me. You are the evidence that this kingdom of darkness, this kingdom of death, is permanently and utterly defeated. So you understand maybe and appreciate now the power of the encouragement that Peter is trying to give the believer. He says, you're suffering for well-doing. That's better than for evil-doing. But remember, Christ suffered for you. And his resurrection went as a proclamation and an announcement to all the hordes of darkness. And they know well that they are defeated. And Christ is now above all of them. So therefore, have no fear. Don't worry. Christ has conquered the ultimate fear. And this is the same encouragement that the Lord wants to give to us. Not only that, the resurrection accomplished much more. Romans chapter 1. And we will read verses 3 and 4. And this verse here I have uh, encountered a number of times by people who, uh, who think that the sonship of Christ is not based on his birth from the Father but on maybe his birth in Bethlehem or maybe his resurrection. You might have encountered this verse. Let's read it. Verse 3, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And people say, you know, see, this is where the Son of God became the Son of God. Total nonsense. You don't understand the scriptures. Sorry. The scriptures here is telling us that when Christ rose from the dead, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. What's another word for declared? Announced. Announced. And who heard that announcement? Everybody. Everybody, particularly the demons. You see, there's something very significant here. The resurrection of Christ established and affirmed a fact. It didn't create a new fact. It didn't create the Son of God. It established that He was the Son of God with power ultimate defeat to the kingdom of Satan. And notice what it says. He declared to be the son, uh, the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Why does it say that he was declared to be the son of God with power? You see, the problem and the whole contest with the great controversy is this particular point. The great controversy is all about the authority of the son. You realize that? As Adventists, we tend to think of the great controversy in terms of the law. Isn't that right? That's the focus. The, the, to most people, the great controversy, if you were to summarize it, is can man keep the law of God or not? You've heard that? Now that's true, but this is a side issue to the main issue. The main issue, the contest, is, an authority, is a contest on authority or over authority. It's the authority of the Son. The devil rebelled against the authority of the Son. And the whole controversy between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels is over the authority of the Son. Will the authority of the Son be acknowledged by Satan who rebelled against it or by anyone else who gets involved in the, in the controversy or not? And so the resurrection did something for this controversy. It completely finalized it as far as Satan is concerned. Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power. There are many examples to, to substantiate this. I just want to tie the ends together so that people don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But when Christ was in the wilderness, you remember, Satan came to him, last temptation, he said, I'll give you all these things if you bow down and worship me. What was Satan really saying? If you recognize my authority, at least a little bit, 
by bowing down and worshiping. That's what bowing down and worshiping really is. It's you recognizing a superior authority figure, whether it be king or whatever it is. I'm not doing away with the whole issue of the law uh, as far as it being uh, central to our thinking, but here is how it works. Recognizing the authority of the son is manifested in loyalty to his law. So obedience is really a statement of recognition of authority and vice versa. Disobedience to the law of the son is a negation or a denial of his authority. So the law is there, but don't miss the whole, the big point. The big point is authority. So, uh, and, and you see that many times in the, in, the, in the life of Christ, the whole sonship aspect. You know, what terrified the demons when Christ faced a possessed person? What's, what's the first thing they said when they saw him? You are the Son of God. That's a terror to the demons. And that terror was multiplied a thousandfold when he walked out of that grave. He was declared to be the Son of God with power. And every demon took off running. Literally. The, the, the last scenes of Christ is, is a package, really, so, so don't miss it. You know, some people say, you know, the death and, and try and... Uh, if Christ had not died, there would be no resurrection. If Christ had not resurrected, the, re the death would have not been uh, useful. So it's a package. It's, it's all together. And that's why I'm saying many times when the Bible talks about the cross, it's talking about that particular event. The victory that Christ accomplished by his death and resurrection. The cross symbolizes or signifies that. So, the question to you and me is this. Will you uphold the authority of the Son in your life? which is manifest by obedience, through Him living in us, of course. Or will you deny the authority of the Son? This is the cont. How do you stand in this great controversy? This is the challenge for us. So, uh, what about the preaching of resurrection? I want to tie all the ends together, because we said earlier, and we talked about uh, the foundation of righteousness. Isn't that right? What does the resurrection have to do with righteousness? Everything. And hopefully we can see that together. The preaching of the resurrection was a central theme in the early church. If you read through the book of Acts, you can't miss it. They kept going on and on about this resurrection. And the, one of the most annoying things for the priests and the Pharisees and the, and the Jews was that the disciples kept preaching the resurrection in the name of Jesus and that he's living, he is not dead. This was a major problem for them. Why did they focus so much on the resurrection? Because the resurrection was really none other than the victory that Christ obtained over Satan. You see, they understood something that perhaps maybe we have missed. We don't focus on the resurrection so much. We don't talk about the resurrection so much. And the question is, why? Maybe we need to appreciate something about it. Let's go to Romans 4. Just quickly here, the last few minutes that are left to us. Romans chapter 4. The resurrection of Christ. His victory over the kingdom of darkness. What does, ha what does that have to do with righteousness. Romans 4.25 Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You ever wondered about this verse? It says he was delivered for our offenses. What's that? Sins, right? He died for our sins. And then he says he was raised for our justification. And justification is when we are justified. And what does that mean? Just as if we'd never seen made right or made righteous. Isn't that right? So we are made righteous by the resurrection of Christ. Well, what's the link? You might think, what's the link? That sounds really deep and profound. But what's the link? You know, sometimes I, I come across verses and I say, wow, that's, that's interesting. But what is the link? You see, the death of Christ was not enough to accomplish our salvation. The death of Christ dealt with our sins. See, there were two problems, at least, among the many other things that the whole plan of salvation accomplishes. But I just want to focus on two things. Here, Christ had to save a race of sinners, right? And this race of sinners had committed sin. And uh, he had to deal with our sin. And uh, his death on the cross deals with our sins, but he still has the problem. Because as children of Adam, we receive from Adam a dying life. You realize that? So even though you deal with the sins, that's all balanced, but really, even though that's done, balance is zero, you're still going to, to die. So not only did Christ have to deal with our sins, He also had to give life. 
And the way that he gives life is, according to this verse, through the resurrection. Why? Because that's when he received life again. And in him receiving life as the second Adam, he imparts life to all the children of the second Adam. And the way this life is imparted is by faith. Right? Righteousness by faith. Isn't that right? This great power which is exercised to us word who? Believe. That's what the resurrection accomplished. See, the resurrection showed that death could not hold Christ, that he now had the right to receive life again, but not just to himself. To receive life for all those who believe. That's why Jesus told his disciples before he died, because I live, ye shall live also. And so that's why he was raised for our justification. That's what makes us right. It's not God simply forgiving us. That's not what makes us righteous. It's when God gives to us and imparts to us and puts in us the very life of His Son. The righteous life of His Son is what makes us righteous. And the righteous life of His Son is available because He was raised. The resurrection. Let's look at, the, let's look at another verse. Romans 10. We're just finishing off here just to, because our time is unforgiving. Romans 10. See the importance of this. Just how important is this resurrection. Romans 10.9. Romans 10.9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Amen. Salvational doctrine, eh? Now, doesn't salvation seem really easy all of a sudden, reading this verse? You know, I wonder about this verse sometimes. What does believing the resurrection, uh, what does that have to do with being saved in that everybody believes in the resurrection? Isn't that right? If you ask any Christian, well, almost every Christian nowadays, they believe in the resurrection. But this is not the biblical belief in the resurrection. Because not everybody is going to be saved who believes. You see, there is a difference between a mental assent to a fact and a believing with all the heart that is manifest. You see, this is why Paul says he wanted to know the power of his resurrection. To experience the power of his resurrection. See, brothers and sisters, the power of his resurrection is really the life of Christ in the believer. This is what believing in the resurrection biblically means not one person who believes with all their heart in the resurrection and what that means and what that implies that we have the life of Christ not one person believing that will be lost that's a foundation for righteousness that's our foundation for salvation the resurrection of Christ let's look at the next verse for with the heart man believeth unto what righteousness there it is and the previous verse just told us that if you believe with all your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And with the heart you believe unto righteousness. So once again, linking. The resurrection is linked with righteousness. Why? Because through the resurrection we receive the righteous life of Christ. And if you have that, you cannot be lost. And if you don't have that, it doesn't matter how much Bible doctrine you know. It doesn't matter how many Sabbaths you kept how many vegetarian dishes you consumed, how many long skirts you put on. If you do not have the resurrection, you cannot be saved. You understand what I mean? Brothers and sisters, this, this is not some doctrine that all Christians believe that is basic and we go on. This is the foundation of our faith. Doesn't the Bible say, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is what? Vain. In other words, our faith is based on the resurrection. Why? That is the crowning achievement of how Christ conquered completely the kingdom of Satan. And believing in the resurrection, and I, I, I don't want us to leave from here, I want us to, to think differently about the resurrection, means that you experience the power of the defeated kingdom of darkness in your life. Otherwise, I have news for you. 
you don't believe in the resurrection, biblically. You might assent to it as a fact of history because the evidence is so compelling, but you don't know the resurrection, except if you have the life of Christ in you. That's why Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Amen. And he that hath the Son hath life. And when you have that, you cannot be lost. This is my appeal to you. Let's not forget what Paul said. And let us make it our desire, an earnest effort by His grace to not only know Him, but the power of His resurrection. And then, when we know the power of His resurrection, we can partake in the fellowship of His sufferings. Sufferings is not as great when we understand what this resurrection has accomplished and what the resurrection has done. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, let us look at the resurrection in a fresh light. Hopefully you've seen it in a fresh light today. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.